The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome Dr. James Hill. He is the founding executive director of the Anschutz Health and Wellness Center at the University of Colorado, where he is also a professor of pediatrics and medicine. He is the co-founder of the National Weight Control Registry, which is a wonderful tool for anyone who wants to know how more than 10,000 people lost at least 30 pounds and have been successfully maintaining it for at least one year. Dr. Hill is also the author of The Step Diet, Count Steps, Not Calories, to Lose Weight and Keep It Off Forever, and is most recently the co-author of a new book called The State of Slim, Fix Your Metabolism and Drop 20 Pounds in Eight Weeks on the Colorado Diet. Dr. Hill holds a Ph.D. in Physiological Psychology. He has published more than 500 scientific articles and book chapters in the area of obesity, and he served as the chair of the first World Health Organization consultation on obesity in 1997. So you have a long list of credits and awards, but you are clearly, Dr. Hill, an international expert on obesity. So welcome. Thanks, Melinda. Happy to be with you. Well, I had a chance to tour your new center at the University of Colorado, and this truly is a wellness center beyond anything I've seen before. And really, I was most struck with an attitude of positivity. So tell me a little bit about how this center came to be and your involvement with it. I'll be happy to. I'm glad you caught the positivity because that's something that we think is an important part of wellness is being positive. But this center has been open for about two years. It's been a dream of mine for a long time, where we have a center that's directed toward lifestyle and health. That's what we're all about, helping people achieve a healthy lifestyle, but also a happier lifestyle, because happiness is a big part of that. And at this center, we conduct a lot of really cutting-edge research, but we also take that research and develop it into programs and initiatives that we take out into the community to change people's lives. Well, I remember one of the things you said. It was a comment from one of your participants, and they said, I was alive before, but now I'm living. How did that happen? When I hear comments like that, it makes me think that we're doing something right. What we learned, we learned so much just by listening to people. When we developed Open the Center, we thought we were opening a prevention center. But what we realized is it's more than prevention. Prevention is still focusing on the bad stuff, stopping the bad stuff. What we learned is, no, we need to be concentrating on accumulating the good stuff. And the reason people are interested in achieving a healthy lifestyle, some of it's to prevent chronic disease, but more it's to live a happy lifestyle. It's to bring a high quality of life. And we try to show people how through their lifestyle they can achieve that. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you what I loved as a dietitian. You actually have a mock supermarket in your center where you teach people kind of the tricks of the trade and help them choose the healthier of choices available to them. But you also focus on areas that don't get enough attention, in my opinion, when it comes to weight control, and that is sleep and stress, as well as positive self-talk. We focus so much on calories and physical activity, but I think those other facets of wellness are undervalued. Couldn't agree more. What we've learned over the years, and we've helped a lot of people lose weight, is you have to have a plan on the what to do. The what to do is very important. The real thing that separates those who succeed from those who don't is what we call the mindset. The mindset is a set of beliefs and attitudes. And as we learn more and more about how to be successful, we see that helping people achieve the right kind of mindset, which is the mental approach to all this, is critical. And it starts with understanding why you're doing it. What's your real motivation for doing it? It's positivity, but it's positivity with a plan. It's learning how to modify your environment, both your physical and your social environment. And it's learning how to develop new habits, routines, and rituals. This is what separates people who succeed long-term is they have the right mental approach to sustain behavior change. Is that what you've learned most from the National Weight Control Registry? I have learned so much from the National Weight Control Registry. This group of people, which are right now 10,000 people, and these people on average are maintaining a 70-pound weight loss for an average of six years. So they're very, very successful people. And we have learned so much from them. And so by looking at the things they do in common, we've been able to bring that back into our research and back into our intervention programs. And we started out by looking at what they do in terms of diet and exercise. But more recently, we've learned things like they align their new lifestyle with things that are important in their life already. So Mm -hmm. they have intentionally or unintentionally developed this mindset that has allowed them to be so successful over the long term. Well, I want to thank you for that registry because, you know, as a practitioner, as a dietitian, I found it to be extremely helpful to direct people to see if these people can succeed, so can you, you know, taking on that kind of mindset where I can do it, they've done it, I can do it, how did they do it, give me a plan. And I remember early on learning that everyone who was successful at weight loss had certain things in common, like eating breakfast or exercising every day, which is, of course, something that you feel very strongly about. Right. But it's fascinating to go into the data. And before you developed this registry, we really didn't have a good finger on the pulse with that. So thank you. Well, you're very welcome. And we... When we started this, it was we had felt like up until then we were learning from the failures, people who lost weight and didn't keep it off, and now we're learning from the successes. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about your screening program because one of the things I loved about the Wellness Center was it wasn't just you're giving people a routine in the gym and a diet to follow. You're also doing very careful measurements of their blood values and their metabolic state and their sleep habits and stress. What are some keys that you've learned from those kinds of assessments, and what are some of the questions that we can give our listeners to maybe get them started? So we do a wellness assessment where we assess six dimensions of wellness. We assess physical fitness, metabolic fitness, sleep, stress, diet fitness, and quality of life. 
And one of the things that we show people is we have a graphic that shows them where they are, but it also shows them the balance, that you're well if you're in balance on all these things. It's not just being good at one or the other. So you might be very, very physically fit, but unless you're sleeping well and managing stress, you're not well. So it's an icon that shows people wellness is a number of things, not any one thing, and we tend to focus on that one thing. Even on weight, we talked about weight loss. We know people that are maintaining their weight, but they're not very well. They're doing it with extreme food restriction. They're not exercising. They're not sleeping well. So one of the big things we've learned is you can't focus on one thing. Wellness is this balance of many, many factors. Now, you've been doing this work for a long time. Have there been any surprises for you along the way? There have been a lot of surprises along the way, and one of the things, I think if you're doing research in this field, you have to be able to change how you believe about things. I'll give you one example. I used to believe that slow, gradual weight loss was the right thing, and we shouldn't do more extreme, higher weight loss. Now I don't think it matters. I think there are a lot of ways to get the weight off. It's keeping it off. I used to think there were certain diets that we should advise people to go on and not go on. And again, I think we're focusing on the wrong thing. I think it almost doesn't matter how you lose weight. What's important is that you get the weight off and you achieve a lifestyle that you can maintain forever. Mm -hmm. Tell me something. Help our listeners, and myself included, understand more about this metabolic fitness. What do you mean by that exactly? So metabolic fitness is essentially how well your body is working the way it was meant to work. And when it's not working well, what you see are, you see obesity, you see high levels of lipids, you see glucose coming up. So you see all these markers of chronic disease. And so our challenge is to help our body work the way it was meant to work. There's a really neat concept in the literature now called metabolic flexibility, and that's part of metabolic fitness. So when your body's metabolically flexible, you're pretty good at burning any type of calories that come in, fat and carbohydrate and protein. And that's the way the body was meant to work. When you stop moving, and unfortunately many Americans have stopped moving, your metabolism becomes inflexible. Now you're not quite as good at burning those because you now have insulin resistance and your muscles change in a negative way. These are tiny little things that day in and day out tend to make you store a little bit more fat than you burn and can lead to obesity and other chronic diseases. So metabolic fitness is your body working the way it was meant to work. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about sedentary behavior. You know, it really is killing us as a nation. I firmly believe, and I know you do too. And yet our society is really designed to develop obesity, right? Like we couldn't have designed a society any better. We get in our cars, we drive to our workplace, we sit in our desks, uh, you know, oftentimes in a cubicle. Maybe we have a couple of breaks, but we might not take them. And I see that setting the stage for insulin resistance and then obesity. How much activity do we need when we've got this sedentary lifestyle sort of ingrained? It's sort of our job that we, you know, we have to sit behind a computer. We have to drive to our workplace. Give me some strategies for working around that. It's really interesting. I was talking to somebody the other day who was a really uh, a, a big thinker, and I, I made that point. I said, gosh, you know, what are we going to do when we're, we, we have to sit at our computers to work? And he said, why do we have to do that? If you look at where technology is going, 
you may not need to sit at your computer anymore. It may be you can be moving and interacting with We think of computer as sitting and typing. You know, with voice recognition and the other technology coming along, it may free us from that. Look at the classroom. Do you really think kids learn better when they sit still for five hours a day? Yeah. Why do we do that? I think we've got to push the limits. I've got to think we have to have innovative thinking where we can learn, we can produce, we can interact with our computers without sitting all day. Mm-hmm. And I also think, I know you've done a lot of work with Worksite Wellness, and your center certainly is working with industry to help their employees stay healthier. But I think we almost have to have worksite policies in place as well as school policies that say it is unacceptable to have children sitting for five hours at a time. And then, you know, the students that are acting up, oftentimes we punish them by not letting them have recess, which is, I think, what they need most badly. Couldn't agree with you more. And what I hope we're beginning to see are some innovators that say, why? Why does it have to be that way? Why do we have to have a classroom that's not very different right now than it was in 1850. Maybe the chalkboards are a little nicer. But it's the same concept of a room and, and kids sitting still. We've got to push the limits on that. I think active learning is something that would be amazing if people tried it. Mm-hmm. And I think, too, with more literature, more research to back us up, maybe we can take some inroads. I mean, you are certainly the international expert on obesity, or certainly one of them, that people go to for just this kind of data. Are you keeping some sort of data library? Say I'm working with a school district and I need to prove that children need so many minutes of physical activity a day to have better scores. Do you know where people can get their hands on that data? That's a good question uh, because I don't know that anybody that's pulled that together. I think you could go out and review the literature. I think you make a fabulous point. I think we need somebody to pull that together because i got to tell you, the reason that schools would really get excited about this is not about health and wellness. They care. Of course they care. These are well-meaning people. But their job is to teach kids, is to get kids to learn. And if we can show them that healthy, active, fit kids learn better, That's a whole different way of thinking about it. Now I think we have the interest of just about every educator. I totally agree with you. Okay, I've got to take one break and remind our listeners that they're listening to Food Sleuth Radio, and we are talking with Dr. James Hill, who is the founding executive director of the Anshad Health and Wellness Center at the University of Colorado, where he is also a professor of pediatrics and medicine. He is an international leader in obesity, and he's also the co-founder of the National Weight Control Registry. And I have to tell our listeners that if you have not visited the registry, I strongly recommend it. It is an absolutely terrific learning tool to understand how to do things well in terms of keeping weight off. I have to ask you, Dr. Hill, you've got a PhD in physiological psychology. What is that? So physiological psychology actually doesn't really exist anymore. The people that used to be physiological psychologists are now neuroscientists. So it started out, I was interested in how the brain regulated food intake. So it was some psychology, but it was a lot of physiology. And so I was really trained as a physiologist And that's the way I approached obesity. My first approach to obesity is I thought something was broken. If we could understand the physiology and fix it, we would understand the problem. I think what I've come to believe, it's not physiology that's broken. It's the environment that's broken. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. 
And because you have that background in physiology, I feel like you're especially the one to ask about these particular questions with weight control. I want to talk about sleep and I want to talk about stress. What does sleep deprivation do to the body that leads to weight gain? There's really been a lot of really great research around sleep and obesity, and it started out by showing an association. So both in kids and adults, people who have poor quality sleep or lack of sleep tend to be more obese. Well, that's an association. And now a lot of people are really beginning to look at why. My colleague, Dr. Ken Wright here at the University of Colorado, did a really neat study where they took people who slept well and they disrupted their sleep. And because they slept less, their energy expenditure was higher. So you would say, that's great, they're burning more calories. But what happened is it affected their food choices. They started choosing much, much more poor quality food. So sleep can disrupt our appetite and our appetite regulation and our food intake regulation. And how does that drive what we choose? I'm assuming there are hormonal and enzymatic changes. Yeah, that's the fun part is now to figure out the mechanisms for that. So I think there are hypotheses, but I don't think we have nailed that down. I think in the next few years, you're going to see terrific research showing the mechanistic link between sleep and obesity. Yeah, and you know, I'm also very interested in this exposure to screen time. And I'm sure you are, too. I've read some studies that say, you know, of course, children shouldn't have screens in their bedrooms, like television, because they're bombarded with all of this advertising. But there also seems to be a role of just sitting in front of the screen and having that exposure close to bed. And I know one of your tips in your state of slim is to get ready for bed and get away from the computer screen. Why is that? Well, that helps in many ways. The sleep people, that's one of the top recommendations of them. And you said no screens in the bedroom for kids. I think it should be the same way. I've, I have a rule in my house, no screens in the bedroom anywhere. My wife sometimes isn't very happy about that. <laughs> but we have no TVs in the bedroom because the bedroom, in my mind, is not the place to watch TV. I think you do need to prepare to get ready for bed. And if you're in screen time, you, you have your brain active in a way that's incompatible with sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember the early work of Dr. Steve Gortmaker, and I believe he was at Harvard, looking at the impact of television viewing on obesity. And it didn't matter whether you were a child or an adult. If you watched more television, you were going to be more overweight. And that's always been one of my mantras in terms of, you know, giving people advice on ways to lose weight. Just get away from the screen. Yeah, if you're sitting in front of the screen, you're doing two things. You're being inactive, so your body's burning very few calories. But the other thing that happens is you tend to eat in front of that screen, and oftentimes your food choices aren't good ones. Yeah, absolutely. All right, along the same lines as the screen time, I think it can also be extremely stressful, and that leads us to stress. And there's all kinds of stressors that we face during the day. It could be a, an unhealthy work environment. It could be a bad relationship in the family or within friends. But how does stress impact our weight? Oh, stress, and let me say this first of all, we all have stress. And yeah. so the way we look at it, it's not whether you have stress or not. It's how you deal with the stress. And psychologists sometimes call that resiliency. Mm. So we're all stressed. We have daily stresses. We have acute stresses where something happens. And we all have that. And the key is how we bounce back from that. And how you bounce back from that tends to be a pretty good 
uh, measure of your wellness. People that are functioning well will get you'll, they'll get decked by stress like everybody else, but then they bounce back. And so it's not getting rid of the stress; it's dealing with it. And there are ways to do that. There's resiliency training and mindfulness and many other things that can happen there. What stress does, I think, I actually think stress and sleep are very similar when it comes to affecting obesity because we hear over and over in our people going through weight management, I'm a stress eater, I get stressed, I just want to eat and eat and eat. And I think there are physiological mechanisms that relate to little sleep and relate inability to deal with stress to these things that affect our appetite in a bad way. So I think in many ways, stress and sleep are similar in how they might affect food intake and obesity. You know, being that you're a physiologist, I I feel like I need to ask you this one burning question that I've been struggling with a while, and that is, do you believe that certain foods are addictive? It's funny. I'm going to a meeting on Monday about food addiction where a lot of really smart psychologists are talking about it. To me, it's not a term that makes sense. I think we're all addicted to food. I, You know, come on, we have to eat. Right. So it's never made sense to me that The addiction model applies to food. But I will say this is a topic of great debate among the neuroscience and the psychology literature, so stay tuned. I think there are certain foods that we tend to overeat, but we're born, for example, liking sweet tastes. Little babies like sweet tastes, so when faced with sweet foods, we tend to overeat them. In my mind, I don't think it fits with an addiction model, but there's a lot of really nice science going on there, so stay tuned. That's, that's great advice. Well, let me ask you, you've, you've put together this new book now, State of Slim, and everyone knows if they've seen the Center for Disease Control and Prevention's charts on obesity and you've watched them over the years, every state has progressively become more obese, including Colorado, but Colorado isn't getting as fat as fast. What is it about Colorado that sets it apart? Well, you know, one of the things that we found when we took the time to look at it was the behaviors that are typical of the Colorado lifestyle. And granted, not everybody in Colorado is lean, but the majority are. So the behaviors, the lifestyle that's typical of Colorado was very similar to the lifestyle we see in the National Weight Control Registry. Now, isn't that interesting that in some ways – People that have lost weight and kept it off have adapted a lifestyle that's sort of very typical of the Colorado lifestyle, starting with activity. So many people in Colorado get up in the morning and they plan their day around physical activity, the positivity, and all the mindset kinds of things. So part of why we wrote the book was to really help people in the minefield of weight management. We think there's so much confusion out there. We wanted to give our 20-plus years of experience here to people saying, Here's a good roadmap for doing it. Now, you still have to bring hard work because none of this is easy. And where you need to get to is a lifestyle like is typical of Colorado and like is typical of the National Weight Control Registry. Well, I have to tell you, when I was at the Association of Healthcare Journalists meeting in Denver a few months ago, I remember recognizing that there weren't as many overweight people where I was anyway in Denver compared to, say, how many I might see in the Midwest. So to me, it was 
visually remarkable. And I agree with you. I remember visiting Colorado decades ago and having this recognition that, gosh, people are riding their bikes so much more here and they seem to be physically active, like that's a part of their life where if we associate with people who are physically active, and you mentioned this in the book, we're more likely to be physically active. Whereas if we associate with people who are happy getting together, sitting in front of the TV, maybe eating all kinds of foods, then we're going to fall in that pattern. It's almost like when you're in, say, Alcoholics Anonymous and you don't want to associate with people that are drinking all the time because it puts that pressure on us to drink. The same thing is true with our lifestyle, isn't it? It totally is. And you know, in Colorado, so many people have told me, I moved here and there was so much pressure around me to be active, I found myself sort of caught up in it. Right. And what we tried to tell people in the state of SLIM is, you know, I think it is easier to maintain a healthy weight in Colorado, but you can create a state of SLIM anywhere you live. It's a little harder. You have to look at social environments and social networks and so forth, but I truly believe that anybody can succeed. And this is not easy. If anybody tells you losing weight and keeping it off is easy, run the other way. But I am a strong believer that people can succeed They can succeed in transforming both their body and their mind, and they can reach a state of slim where they're maintaining a healthy weight over the long term. One of the things that I really like about your latest book is towards the back, it's in an appendix, and it's physical activity, routines, rituals, and tips, and it absolutely speaks to what you were just saying. You write, become an organizer. If your friends aren't already walking, set up a walking group. And I remember years ago recognizing the value of having a buddy system. We've known that for years, the fact that somebody's coming to my house and depending on me to walk with them so I'm not going to shrug it off and stay in bed and, you know, just turn off the alarm. Oh, it's so important, and people can do that. And, And when we get people to go out and do it, they're surprised at how receptive people are around them. You know, we had one woman that said, gosh, the people at work, they just bring in all the candies and cookies and it's terrible. And we said, we'll talk to them. And she did. And what she found out, there was a whole group of people that would love it if they changed that, that weren't happy with that. So she became the organizer and suddenly they started having healthier food around. So what you'll find is there are a lot of people like you that want to have the healthier stuff. Just step up and be the organizer and be the leader. Yeah, and asking for what we need, that also helps reduce stress, I think, too. Yes. Well, we only have a couple of minutes left, and I want to make sure that I give you a chance to bring forth anything from your decades of research and work in this field that I may not have touched upon. So, again, most people who come to our center come for they want to lose weight, and they're real interested in losing weight. What we teach them is losing weight's the easy part. Keeping it off is the hard part. And as you succeed in losing weight, You have to look at diet quality and exercise and sleep and stress and all these other things. You don't have to do that just to lose weight. You only have to do it if you want to keep that weight off. So it's about forever, and it's about achieving a lifestyle that's not deprivation, that's not eating differently from everybody around you. It's achieving a lifestyle that requires, once you get the weight off, we teach you how to eat smart and how to make regular physical activity a part of your day so you keep your metabolism flexible. And with that... Most people can maintain a healthy weight, even in the environment we live in today. Mm -hmm. And changing habits, how long does that take? It takes a long time, and sometimes it takes months or years to get new habits. And, you know, the older we get, the more ingrained the bad habits are. So creating a new habit requires 
grooving in that new habit. And these are actually changes that happen in the brain and letting the old habit die, sort of like a path in the woods. You create a new path and you have to let the old one grow over and you have to let the new one wear down. And that can take months or years to really get those new behavior patterns ingrained. That's a great analogy to leave us with. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Dr. James Hill. He's the founding executive director of the Anschutz Health and Wellness Center at the University of Colorado, where he is also a professor of pediatrics and medicine. He is an international leader in obesity prevention and weight control, and now he is most recently the co-author of The State of Slim, Fix Your Metabolism and Drop 20 Pounds in Eight Weeks on the Colorado Diet. I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And I especially want to thank you, Dr. Hill, for contributing to our knowledge in this area and for being my guest. Melinda, it's been a pleasure spending time with you. 